We are in the middle of a series of messages on life in the Spirit, living as possessors of God's Holy Spirit. The Scripture speaks to us frequently in the New Testament about a concept that Christians have given the name union with Christ. Union with Christ is the center of Paul's writings. You find it over and over. We are in Christ and we do things through Christ and by Christ and we are with Christ and all things are for Christ. It appears in Peter's books as well and John's writings. Believers are joined to Christ so that all that he is and has done and has accomplished becomes theirs. This is how we are saved. All of the benefits that Christ has in him, particularly the benefit of life, becomes ours. His righteousness becomes ours. His holiness, his sanctification, his wisdom, Paul tells us. Today in John 15 verses 1 through 8, we have come to the teaching of Jesus that actually is the foundation of that idea of union with Christ. It's the teaching of Christ from which all of the rest of the theology of the New Testament concerning union with Christ flows. This is the bedrock. This passage is about abiding in the vine. It's the seed from which the rest of the New Testament's teaching about union with Christ will grow. Now, we are in the middle of a series of messages on life in the Spirit. Why pause at this point to look at this idea of abiding in Christ? What does that have to do with life in the Spirit? What does union, ha- union with Christ have to do with our theme? And the answer to that question is given to us in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. And you can go read these verses later. They are very enlightening. Life in the Spirit is the same thing as living in union with Christ. How are believers united to Christ when He is so far away from us in the heavens? And the answer is He has sent to us His Spirit to dwell within us. And so Paul says, if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, then you are His. You are in Christ, Paul says. You belong to Him. And so, union with Christ, that we're going to see here this morning in John 15, is the same thing as living in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit is simply a matter of living out our union with Christ. And life in union with Christ is simply the same thing as living in the Spirit. And as we will see today, life in the Spirit... Well, union with Christ is the secret to all Christian fruitfulness. It's the path to Christian joy, to deeper communion with Christ, to answered prayer, to obedience, to everything in this Christian life. It all comes through Christ and through His Spirit. Indeed, as Christians, we live our entire lives in Christ today. The Christian life is life in the Spirit. It is life in in union with Christ. Now, we've parachuted into John's gospel here in John 15 at a very critical point in what John is trying to tell us here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has just announced in the previous chapters that he's leaving. He will return to glory with the Father. He says that time when he leaves will come quickly. And to this point, the disciples have lived for three years in the shadow of this rabbi from Galilee. They have watched him perform the works of God, raising the dead. He has shown them the Father's love for this world. 
He has fulfilled all righteousness. And to this point, they've only merely been following him and watching and looking on. They have been watching as he has loved and fulfilled all righteousness. But now he is returning to heaven. How will they follow him now? What is the essence of being a follower of Jesus Christ when he does not walk this earth? And Christ's teaching here is the basis upon which the entire Christian life proceeds. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to follow Jesus Christ today. So we will read uh, these verses and we'll just take them and look at each section of the passage, the first eight verses, and then we're going to come back together and answer a few questions and put it all together, okay? Let's look at verse 1. I am the vine, the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the vine dresser. Christ here declares himself to be the true vine. In saying, I'm the true vine, he's obviously contrasting himself with some other vine that is not the true vine. And we find out what that vine is in Isaiah 5, and you can go and read that, Isaiah 5, 1 through 11, later on. We're not going to take the time to do that today. But if you do read that passage, you will see what Christ means when he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. He is the one, I'm sorry, Christ is the true vine in distinction to Old Testament Israel under the Mosaic Covenant. Israel was the previous vine, he says, but what kind of vine did she turn out to be? We've looked at this in Deuteronomy. Not a very fruitful vine, right? Driven into captivity. And just as in John 15, where he says, my father is the vine dresser, so also in Isaiah 5. Isaiah says that that God is the vine dresser. He's done everything that is possible in hopes of cultivating crop of righteousness. Despite God's work to do everything that was required to ensure Israel's fruitfulness, she didn't produce anything of value. God had done everything possible to ensure that she was positioned for success, but instead Israel brought forth wild grapes. And God's response, he says in Isaiah 5, is to remove the hedges to set the ravenous Gentile nations upon Israel as a pack of dogs who would destroy that vineyard. And that's what we see. Assyrians... Babylonians destroy that nation and carry them into captivity. So when Christ says here, I am the true vine, what does he mean by true? He can only mean that he is the true vine and that he's going to bear fruit where Israel has failed to. And that's what the rest of the passage in John 15 here is dealing with, the bearing of fruit. How is it that Christ will bear fruit where Israel failed to? Well, look at verses 2 and 3. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you, referring to the 11, the 12 12 apostles, 11 apostles, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Christ is the true vine, but every vine has branches, he says. And Christ speaks in verse 2 of two different kinds of branches. Notice them. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. And later on in the verse, every branch that does bear fruit. And in both cases, he, the vine dresser, he responds to the branches according to their fruitfulness. He takes away those branches that do not bear fruit. And those branches that do bear fruit, he prunes them. 
to increase their productivity. And these statements are dramatic. One involves the ominous statement that the branch will be taken away. And the other involves the painful process of pruning. And Jesus interjects in verse 3 a reassuring word to his 11 apostles who are gathered round him. You're already clean through the word that I've spoken to you. In other words, do not fear that the vine dresser will remove you. My words have had their effect upon you and you are clean branches. Prepared now to bring forth fruit. So these first two verses, verses 2 and 3, show us that the vine dresser removes unfruitful branches from the vine and that he works to bring about the greater measure of fruitfulness from the remaining branches. And in view of these dramatic realities in verses 2 and 3, it seems critical then that we know how fruit is produced. If he takes away the branches that don't produce fruit, how does production of fruit occur? How can the 11 branches that are positioned around him bear fruit? Well, notice verse 4, and right in the middle of the verse, you see the word as, as the branch. Christ here sets up a comparison for us to help us understand what bearing fruit looks like. He exhorts the disciples in verse 4, abide in me. Why? Because think about a vineyard. The branch cannot produce fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. And neither can you produce fruit unless you abide in me. The disciples had seen the vineyards as they'd approached Jerusalem just days earlier, bringing forth fruit. It wasn't a bunch of disconnected branches that were bearing those wonderful clusters of grapes. It was branches attached to vines that brought forth fruit. And just as those vines, so also in Christ. Let's look at verse 4 at the comparison carefully. Verse 4, as the branch, just as a branch does not bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, so the other side of that comparison, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in Christ, the true vine. And in verses 5 and 6 then, Christ makes clear exactly what the vine and the branches are in the comparison. He shows the significance to this vine picture to what it means for us to bear fruit. And he begins by telling us who's who. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And just as the branch cannot bear fruit apart from the vine, so you cannot bear fruit apart from me. And this is why he exhorts us to, bear, to abide in him. Bearing fruit is impossible unless you do. In verse 5 then, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. This verse focuses on those branches who do abide in Christ. He that abides in me. You see that? I'm the vine. Whoever abides in me and I in him. That one is the one who bears much fruit. And verse 6 then focuses on those branches that do not abide in Christ. If a man does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. So, second half of verse 5, the branches which abide in Christ are the ones who bring forth the fruit. Why? Because apart from the vine, fruit bearing is impossible. That's a humbling reality. Can you face that? Without me, you can do nothing. 
cut a branch off a vine, lay it, lay it on the ground. How much fruit will it produce? A little bit on its own, it can do a little bit, but if you attach it to the vine, well, there's a whole lot more. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Christ says. How much we need him if we are to bear fruit. And we'll look at what that means, abiding in Christ in a little bit. Verse 6, in contrast, those branches that do not abide in Christ, here's the other side of the comparison, those branches are thrown away, they wither, men gather them, they are cast into the fire and are burned. And that sounds a lot like verse 2. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. What does it mean to be taken away? Verse 6 explains that to you. What a fearful possibility if you do not abide in Christ and bear fruit. And verses 7 and 8 will be the primary focus of our time together this morning, so we'll examine them in more, late, more detail later. But these verses show us what it means to abide in Christ and what this fruit is that we bear when we do. Okay, we understand the comparison, I think, between vines and branches and fruit and Jesus Christ and his followers and the fruit. But what is Jesus saying to us here? There's two questions we need to answer first, and then I think we can make sense of what Jesus is saying to us here, okay? Here's the first question. What is the fruit that the branches bear when, a, when they abide in, in the vine? What is the fruit to be born? Turn back two chapters to verse 35, and for the next about the next 15 minutes, we'll be looking at chapters 13, 14, and 15 really closely. And if you will follow carefully, I think that verse chap, chapters, uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8 will make a lot of sense. Get done. Let's turn back to chapter 13 and look at verses 34 and 35. This is the last meal Christ is sharing with his disciples before he leaves. The urgency of the moment, his departure at hand, he gives them a new commandment. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He commands them, love as I have loved you. By their love for one another, the world will know they are his disciples. How does the world know that ragged little groups of Christians who gather together every Lord's Day are indeed the disciples of that man from Galilee who gave up his life in death for the love of his own people? And the answer is, they give up their lives as well in sacrificial love for one another. He loved his sheep. He died for them. His followers love the same group of people. Christ's sheep. Do you love the other lambs for whom Christ has died? If you do, if you love those whom he loved, you show that you are his disciple. Your love for Christ's people for one another proves you are his disciple. Now, let's compare 13, 34 through 35 to chapter 15, verse 8. Okay, so keep your hand in 13. Turn back over to chapter 15. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. What proves we are Christ's disciple in verse 8? Bearing fruit. 
What proves we are Christ's disciple in 1335? Love. As he loved. So what's the fruit? Love for one another. And Paul says that to love is to fulfill the whole law. Listen to Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, because the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why does loving fulfill the whole law? And the answer is, Christ said, because the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor, those are the two on which all the other commandments hang. To fulfill them is to fulfill the entire rest of the law. And if we truly loved God with all of our hearts, and we truly and consistently loved our neighbors as ourselves, what law would you have failed to fulfill? Can you find one? There is no law to love yourself. But those two categorize everything else. Love fulfills the law. And so in John 15, we find that Christ is the true vine in contrast to Israel. God's hope for Israel was fruit, righteousness. How did she do? Not well at all. But Christ, the true vine, commands his disciples to love. His love is the fulfillment of that whole law. And when his disciples love, they are fulfilling the law, the entire thing. They're producing the fruit that Israel was supposed to produce. Christ and his people as vine and branches then succeed today where Israel failed. So the, law, so the, the fruit to be born is love. But bearing this fruit depends upon whether or not we abide in Christ. See that in verse 5? I'm the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears this fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. So how does abiding in Christ produce the fruit of love? This is our second question that we need to look at. How does abiding in Christ produce fruit? Well, look at verse 4. John 15, verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. There's two phrases there, abide in me and I in you. The second one doesn't have a verb or an action word, right? Abide in me and I, what am I going to do? Well, we have to supply the word abide again from the first phrase, right? Abide in me and I abide in you. What does that mean? What is Christ saying here? We can insert the word abide, and Christ expects us to do that. But in what sense will he abide? Is he, is he saying this, abide in me, and I will abide in you? Is he saying, abide in me, and I may abide in you? Is he saying, abide in me in the same way that I will abide in you? What is the sense of that second phrase? Abide in me, and I abide in you. I think that we ought to read it with this understanding in view. Abide in me, and if you do, I will abide in you. In other words, abiding in Christ comes first, and then the response, his response is, I will abide in you. We could read it that way. If you abide in me, then I will abide in you. And understanding in that way is 
actually, I think, right, because look at verse 7. If you abide in me. And so that's one reason that I'm saying that I think verse 4, the understanding we ought to have is this. If you abide in me, then I will abide in you. Jesus commands us here to abide in him. And what happens if we do? He will abide in us. What does that mean? If you abide in me, I will abide in you. Well, let's read the rest of the verse, verse 4 and into verse 5. Okay? Verse 4. Abide in me. If you do, I will abide in you. I think we're justified in reading it that way because of verse 7. And actually the grammar of verse 4 in the original language can read the way we have it here in our English Bibles or it can actually read, you could actually translate it legitimately the way that I'm suggesting that we do. And I think verse 7 tells us that's the way to read it. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Look at verse 4 again. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. Verse 5, a man who abides in me does what? He bears much fruit. If you abide in me, I will abide in you. The man who abides in me will bear much fruit. The first part of verse 4 and verse 5 are the same. The second parts are different, but actually I think they're the same. Abiding, what what Christ means in verse 4, and I will abide in you, is the same thing that he means in verse 5 when he says you will bring forth much fruit. Abiding in Christ, abiding in us in verse 4 is the same thing as our bringing forth much fruit in verse 5. We already know what the fruit is, right? If you bring forth much fruit, what is that fruit? You will love as Christ loved. So what is Christ saying here? He's saying, if you abide in me, you will bear the fruit of loving as I have loved. Because if you abide in me, I will abide in you. By abiding in Christ, Christ abides in us. In the sense that his love is in us and flows out of us. So we could say it this way. I think this is what Christ is trying to say to us here in verses 4 and 5. Abide in me. And I, if you do, with all of my life-giving sap and vigor of the vine, if you abide in me, all of that will abide in you. My sap and vigor and life will flow through you. I have loved, and it will come out of you in fruit as well, if you abide in me. How do we come to love as Christ loved? Only if he is in us and we are in him and we then bear fruit from the vine. Then we love as Christ has loved. When Christ says to us, love as I have loved you, is that merely imitation? Oh, I saw what Jesus did. Yeah, I have to do that too. I think I can probably do that, do what he did. No. In fact, it's the vine that produces this fruit through us. You cannot bear it unless 
you abide in the vine and the vine in you. But as we abide, he abides in us in the sense that his life of love lives in us and overflows to us, overflows to those around us so that we love others as he loved. And therefore the love and the fruit that comes out of us actually begins in the vine. And as he is in us, this is how it comes about as we abide in Christ. So how do we abide in Christ then? This is our last question. How do we abide in Christ? What does it mean to abide in Christ? Okay. Let's go find the answer back in John 14. If you would turn back to John 14. I just want to read to you verses 8 through 14. John 14, verse 8. Philip said to Christ, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Philip wants to see the Father. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus is enjoying a last meal with his disciples before he's crucified. He's told his disciples that he's going away to the Father. Naturally, they want to go with him. Lord, take us along so that we can see the Father. They want to know the way. And Jesus says, I'm the way, right? John 14, verse 6. I'm the way if no one comes to the Father but by me. And in verse 8, Philip wants Jesus to show the Father to him. And Jesus says that to have seen him is to have seen the Father. That's quite a statement. To have seen Jesus is to have seen the Father. How can Jesus make such a strong statement? Are he and the Father the same? Jesus questions Philip about whether he actually believes then what Jesus has taught throughout his ministry that I and my Father are one. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. If you believe that, Philip, you would agree that to have seen me is to have seen the Father. Now, I want to pause and observe that in verse 10 and verse 11, Jesus' language I am in the Father and the Father is in me, sounds an awful lot like abide in me and I in you. You see that? Very similar. Christ's relationship to the Father and our relationship to Christ are given to us in the same terms. So in what sense is Jesus in the Father and the Father in Jesus? If we could figure that out, I think it would shed some light on in what sense must we abide in Christ and Christ in us. Jesus gives us the answer to what that means. I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. In the second half of verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. 
Jesus says that the words that they hear, that they think are Jesus' words, are actually whose words? The Father's. How does that work? The Father's in Christ. Christ is in the Father. That means the Father is the source of the words that Christ is speaking. And that means to have seen Christ, to have heard Christ, to have seen his works, was to see whose works? To hear whose words? The Father's. Because the Father is in Christ. Similarly, the works that Jesus do testify to the same phenomenon. These are not merely the works of Jesus of Nazareth that we see him doing. His works are not merely human works. They are divine works. So believe Christ's words that he's in the Father and the Father is in him. He's not just an ordinary man walking around. There's something in him, the Father, that is producing these divine works and these divine words. And then Jesus says this in verse 12. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will do also the works that I do. How will that happen? Look at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Whatever you ask, I will do. When Jesus ascends to his Father, his followers will ask him to do things and he will do them. But, verse 12, they will be the ones doing them. You will do the greater works. But you'll ask me, and I will do them. So Philip, do you understand what Christ is saying here? All of this is to the glory of God the Father. There is a chain that Christ is giving us here in John 14. Jesus' works and his words are actually the Father's works and words. And they're coming out of him because the Father is in him. And thus to see Jesus is to see the Father. So Philip, how can you say, show us the Father? To have seen Jesus at work was to see the Father at work. To have heard him speak was to hear the Father speak. All of this is founded on the fact that the Father is in the Son. So what if the Son were in you? Father and the Son. What if the Son were in you? Jesus says he's returning to heaven, but he promises to send them another helper to be with you and to be in you, he says in John 14. This helper is the Spirit of God. And Paul says, if the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, then Christ is in you. So in promising to give them the Spirit, he's saying what? I'm going to be in you the same way the Father is in me. By this arrangement, Jesus says, you'll do greater works than I've done. And all of this, verse 12, will be so that the Father is glorified. The Father is in Christ. Christ sends his Spirit in us. We do the works of Christ. The original source and spring is the Father. So that the works that we do actually reflect back then on the original source and spring, the Father. There is a chain. With that understanding now, let's go back to John 15. And I think this will make sense. Verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, if you abide in me the way that I abide in the Father, 
If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Ask, ask. That's what he said in verse four, in chapter 14. Ask, you ask and I'll do it. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Who's going to do it? Christ. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask and I'll do it. In this way, my father is glorified. How? By your bearing much fruit and proving to be my disciples. Here we see the same pattern we saw in chapter 14. There, in chapter 14, Christ is in the Father. The Father's in Him in the sense that the Father's doing His works in and through Christ. So you look at Christ and you see the Father doing His works and His words. All of this was so that Christ would bring glory to the Father as the source and fountain of the works. That same pattern is here in chapter 15. Here we abide in Christ... And he's in us in the sense that through his work in us, we bear the fruit of love, the very love that he himself had. And so prove ourselves to be his disciples. And once again, all of this, verse 8, is for the glory of God. Our bearing of fruit is to the glory of God because it actually all starts in him, right? It starts in the vine and the Father is actually in the vine. And so the fruit that we bear comes from the Father. The ticket to it all is to abide in Christ. That's the link in which all of this hangs. Okay? So I've been through a lot. You need to take a break here. We've got two more questions to answer, two more short questions to answer, and then we'll put it all together. Okay? Lots to put together in John's Gospel. It's just the way John writes. Okay? Let's take a breather for just a minute. What does it mean then to abide in Christ? Christ, so that he is in me, doing his works in me, so that I love as he loved. His love comes out of me. How does this work? Let's look at verse 7 for the answer. John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Compare that with verses 4 and 5. If you abide in me and I in you, What will happen? Verse 5. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Abide, bear much fruit. Look at verse 7. Abide, my words abide in you. Ask what you will, it'll be done for you. Abide, bear fruit. Abide, my words abide. Ask ask whatever you will, it'll be done for you. There's two changes between verses 4 and 5 and verse 7. Okay? The first one is this. In 4 and 5, Jesus says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. But in verse 7, that becomes what? My words will abide in you. Abide in me, I'll abide in you. Abide in me, my words will abide in you. Second change is this. Verses 4 and 5. Whoever abides will bring forth much fruit. In verse 7, whoever abides will ask what he wills, and it will be done for him. See those changes? We know that asking and it being done, in verse 7, is what it means to bear fruit because of what verse 8 says. Okay, look at verse 8. You ask whatever you will, it will be done for you in this way. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So when he says in verses 4 and 5, abide and you'll bear fruit, and he says in verse 7, abide... And whatever you ask, it'll be done for you. Whatever you ask, and it'll be done for you is the same thing as bearing fruit. Okay? So he's talking about the same thing in verses 4 and 5 and 7 and 8. Okay? Now, 
Let me point out two things, and then we'll have our answer to what it means to abide in Christ. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. My words in you. That sounds a lot like the new covenant we looked at recently. I will write my words in your heart. How did they get in there? If you abide in me and my words are in you. How did they get there? God wrote them there. What does God mean? He obviously doesn't mean that we now look at our hearts to read his word. We no longer need our Bibles. We just follow our hearts. Instead, he means that his work shapes our hearts according to his words. Our hearts, our affections, the seat of what we love is formed and shaped by God's words. It's the promise of the new covenant. In other words, the orientation of our hearts is now towards God's words. We love His law. It's written in our heart. Oh, how I love your law. It is written in my heart, the psalmist says. And that means then that we begin to love the words that we once despised because of God's work to write them in our hearts. And in that context, we can understand now the rest of the verse. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Does that mean you can ask for a Lamborghini or a seven-story house and God will give it to you? Ask whatever you wish. What do you wish? Do you really wish for a Lamborghini and a seven-story house? If God wrote his words in your heart, what do you wish? If he caused your heart to be oriented in love towards his words, to desire to do it, oh, how I love to do your will, the psalmist says. That's the prayer of Christ. If your heart is oriented towards God's law and his words, and that is your one wish, to do them, ask whatever you wish. It'll be done for you. What does a Christian really want to do? What does he really love? He wants to fulfill God's law. He wants to live a life that is pleasing to him. It is because God has written his law in his heart that he wants those things. And in that context, Jesus says, ask for that and it will be done for you, whatever you desire. And what will be, what will be the result? The Father will be glorified by the production of much fruit. In other words, as you ask for the love of Christ to be poured out in you so that you might walk in the ways of the Lord, the Spirit of God in you goes to work to produce that in you. Produce in your life the fruits of love and joy and peace and righteousness that God desires that you bear when you ask for it in humble dependence. So, what does it mean to abide in Christ? In a word, we have our answer. It means to depend upon Christ and His Spirit for the production of this fruit. Ask. It'll be done for you. To abide in the vine is to depend upon the vine for the production of fruit, not to trust in yourself. Imagine a branch detached from the vine, straining and struggling to produce fruit. It's a hopeless situation, right? The branch thinking... I'm, I'm going to bear a cluster of love today. But what if the branch remains attached to the vine? What would that attachment look like? 
Not, I'm going to bear this fruit today, no matter what it takes. I can do this. What about if Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing, so ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. In that posture of dependence, submission, you're right, Lord, apart from you, nothing. But I'll ask. You said you'd do it. I will ask for your will to be done in me that I might bear the fruits of love as Christ loved. What's the result? You'll bear much fruit. And in this way, the Father, the source of it all. Not you is the source. You don't get any credit for the grapes. The Father in Christ who sent the Spirit in you to produce the love of Christ, you will love as he loved. And you'll look a lot like Christ and people will look at you and say, I think I know who your master is. I think I know who you follow. So what does all of this have to do with life in the Spirit? Well, how does Christ produce his fruit in us? How did the Father bring about his works in Christ? How does Christ bring about his works in us? And the answer is through the Spirit who dwells within us. We've seen that Christ did everything he did in the power of the Spirit. We've seen that in Luke. The Father did his works in Christ by the Spirit. We find this over and over again in both Luke and John's Gospels. The same is true for us. Jesus says, the one who has been on me, I will put him in you. And I give you a new commandment, love as I loved. Ask whatever you will, it'll be done for you. So our responsibility is to walk dependently upon Christ and his Spirit. His word in our heart, our posture towards it, independence and prayer, that God would bring forth the fruits in us. We must not walk in the power of the human flesh, but in the power of the Spirit, Paul tells us in Galatians. Abiding in Christ is life in the Spirit. It is walking in the Spirit. It is living by faith in the Son of God. This is what it means to live in the Spirit. So in summary, let's summarize this and make this really practical. I'm just going to read through this quickly here. In future sermons, we will continue to work out what this means. Okay, this is probably very hazy in a lot, of our, a lot of our thinking, and that's because we live in this world that teaches us to rely upon ourselves. But let's start down the track of thinking about what this means for our life today. Every branch that abides in Christ bears fruit because Christ abides in every branch that abides in Him. Meaning, His Spirit and His words are in that person to cause them to call out for the things that they wish. When they call out, it is done for them. How is it done? By the power of the Spirit who, re who resides within them to bring forth His fruits of love. In this way, God the Father, the fountain of all love and righteousness, works His fruits of love and righteousness in us. And so, what does that mean for our life today, tomorrow? How do you abide in Christ? How do you live in the Spirit? How do you live as a Christian? Not as a legalist, as a Christian. The answer is by conscious, faith-filled, prayerful dependence and hope in the promise of God that His Spirit will bring forth the fruits as we depend upon Him and strive in His power. Abiding in Christ is a matter of dependence. So if you are a participant in the new covenant, God's done two things for you. First, He's written His law in your heart. You now love it, and you actually want to fulfill it. And if you do not love God's law and you do not wish to fulfill it, you are not part of God's people. The second thing God has done is he's put his spirit within you to bring those desires to pass. 
But God does not work where human self-will and self-effort and self-reliance reign. Self-reliance or confidence in the power of my own human will to produce righteousness will always come to failure. God refuses to bring forth fruit where human self-reliance and self-confidence reign. It's a bit like Gideon, his 32,000 men. If God gives the victory when Gideon is trusting in the 32,000, guess who gets the glory at the end of the day? The 32,000. But if God strips him down to 300 and says, there's no way you can do this, then when it all comes about, guess who gets the glory? Gideon builds the altar not to the 32,000, but to the Lord, who is the one who brought it about. If God gave you the victory at the point when you are trusting in yourself, you would attribute every victory to your own strength. So in God, instead, God gives us a look at ourselves that humbles us. He tells us, look, apart from me, you can do nothing. But ask what you will and it'll be done. He tells us that without Christ, we have no possibility of any hope of success. But when we submit ourselves to that fact, when we humble ourselves before what Christ says, apart from me, you can do nothing. When you really line up with that and humble yourself under that, and you cry out to the Lord instead of to yourself, with the power to walk forward in righteousness. When you live in humble dependence upon Christ and His Spirit, He goes to work in you. He gives His grace to the humble. And you begin to bear the fruits of love and joy and peace. If there's nothing else you take away from the sermon today, grasp hold of this one statement. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And let that humble you down to the dust. When you are on your face before the Lord, then you're in a place where the Spirit of God can go to work. Abiding in Christ is a matter of being humbled every day by this truth and turning your gaze upward to Christ and His Spirit in dependence and prayer for the production of this fruit in you and then walking forward in that dependence, not in self-reliance, but walking forward in God, Christ, Spirit, dependence. That is abiding in Christ. And if you do abide in Him, He will abide in you and He will bear His fruits in you. His life of love will flow through you out into the fruits of love in your own life. And in that way, you will prove yourself to be Christ's disciple and God the Father, the fountain of all love, will be glorified. Can you submit yourself to these things and yield to them? Will you humble yourself before this, what Christ says to us? Will you stop striving for righteousness in the power of your own strength and start fighting for holiness in the confidence that in your weakness he is strong? This is what it means to live in the Spirit. And we'll chase that some more in the future. Lord God, you are kind to not only ask of us righteousness, but to give us the power of your Holy Spirit, the glory of the new covenant, the transformation of heart that you've promised, that we might walk forward in love and righteousness as Christ did. Lord God, we humble ourselves under Christ's statement that apart from him we can do nothing. And we ask that as we remain dependent upon the vine, and his word is in us, and we ask what we will, that we would bear much fruit, that Christ in, would do in us his good pleasure to the glory of God the Father. And now, Lord, as we observe the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would grant us grace for the faith that we express here. And we ask this in Christ's name.